Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village. And he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He saw them. He said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and praise God and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this, your word, uh, Lord, we pray that you would lead us in the way that we should go. Father, the reality is, is all of our hearts, whether we know it or not, they they long to hear from you this morning. Lord, only you can can speak to us in a way that would penetrate to that place. And so we pray now by the power of your Spirit that you would be at work in each one of our hearts. Lord, that you would take these words as feeble as they may be, my words as feeble as they may be, and that you would use them for your glory and for your honor. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we began our study here in Luke 17 uh, by considering part one of what I said then and what still is really just a very long sermon covering verses 1 through 19 uh, called Sobering Reminders. Uh, Now, I realize some of you might suggest that all of my sermons are very long, and I will give you that, that that might be the case, but this one would have been exceptionally long. And so, for your sanity and for my job security, uh, I decided to just do part one last week, verses one through six, Uh, and what we saw there is and was our first two points. Now, before I remind you of what those points were, I just want you to recall that we said that verse three of this passage of chapter 17 really seems to be the verse that, that sort of holds the whole thing together. I don't know if I did a great job of expressing this last week, but these four kind of accounts that we have, when you read them, they really sort of seem to be disjointed. They don't seem to hold together very well, but it seems that that verse 3 kind of is the one that holds them all together. You remember Jesus says there to the disciples, pay attention to yourselves. In other words, as my people, as you go out into the world and as you deal with sinners, as you deal with with both the world and the church, as you receive this great power to establish the church and to grow it in my name, and ultimately as you receive authority to to rule in my church, the authority to, to govern over the church in my name, what you need to be sure that you are doing is keeping a close eye on yourselves, not not thinking that you are too good or that you are somehow better than everyone else, but you need to make sure, and I said this is what my mother would say, that you're not getting too big for your britches, right? You need to make sure that, that you have a, a, a well-rehearsed, um, a well-thought-out 
uh, conception of yourselves. The fact is, is all of us, and the disciples too, are sinners in need of grace and forgiveness, of faith and salvation. And so Christ here, in order to lead them to that end, in order to help them see those things, he, he makes these almost overwhelming statements, these overwhelming demands of their lives. Uh, and he brings them uh, to this place, and he brings us to this place uh, to kind of take us down a few notches. Not, not, in, uh, not in a way to, to hurt us, not in a way to make us necessarily feel really bad about ourselves, though it may do a little bit of that. But he does it so that we will learn more and more to look away from ourselves and learn to live in a humble submission to him. Really, that is the only way these disciples, as they move into the next phase of Jesus' ministry, and especially after he leaves, that's the only way they're going to be able to function in the world is if they are resting wholly and fully in Him. Now that was true for them 2,000 years ago, and it's also true for us as God's people today. The only way we can function in the world as we were intended is to rest more and more in Him. And so here, Jesus is, is trying to teach us to do that. And He did it last week with, with our first two points. First, we saw sobering interactions, personal relational interactions. Uh, God's people are not meant to be the cause of offense. They're not meant to cause anyone to, to they're not meant to lead anyone into temptation or cause others to sin. And they're also not to take offense when others sin against them. You remember he said, even if someone sins against you seven times in a day, if they come back and they ask for repentance, if they come back in repentance, they ask for forgiveness then we are to forgive even seven times. Now we said then, and clearly, these are our difficult demands, especially when you consider the extent to which our sinful hearts will go not to be in our sins alone, right? We, we want to bring others with us because we want to say, hey, it wasn't just me, it was this guy too. If you've ever worked with kids for any amount of time, you know this is true because they do it and our hearts do it too. We want to bring others with us. And this is difficult also because we know how hard it is to really forgive to the extent that, that the Bible calls us to forgive, as Christ has forgiven us, to really forgive and forget. And so, with all of that said, it was not surprising to find in verse 5, because I think our hearts feel this as well, that the disciples, they cry out to the Lord, increase our faith. Right? That seems like a reasonable response. And we said that, that it was one of their better responses throughout the pages of the gospel. But remember, remember how Jesus used those words to make our second point, which is a sobering faith. In verse 6, rather than saying, yes, here, let me give you more faith. Let me get you to, like, if you're a video game player, let me get you to, like, level 99 of faith. Rather than saying that... What he says is, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. you know, in other places, he says, you could move mountains. You could say to this mountain, move, and it would be moved. In other words, what, what Jesus was saying to us is it's not the amount of faith that makes the difference in our lives. It is simply the presence of faith, no matter the size, as long as it is nurtured and it is resting 
in the source of the power, right? Uh, we, we've said it already this morning. I said it in my pastoral prayer, but I want to say it again. Faith is not what we're looking to. Some of you will remember this, and I probably have said this before, but several years ago when we had special services, um, oh, I shouldn't have done this. I didn't write this down, and now I can't remember. What's the guy's name? Uh, Les Newsom. That was the RUF campus minister in Oxford. He came, and he, he did our special services, and he made an illustration that I'll never forget. He said, faith is like the windshield of your car. If you look at the windshield of your car as you're driving down the road, what's going to happen? You're going to have a wreck, right? So you don't look at the windshield, but you look through the windshield at what's coming, right? Well, faith is the same way. Faith is not what we look to to save us. Faith is merely the instrument that we look through to the source, to Jesus. We apprehend Christ through faith. I think the Catechism says it's an instrument, right? It's an instrument that we reach out and we grasp Christ through. So, the source of the power is not our faith. It's not the amount of faith that we have. The source of the power is the one that we cling to. The source of the power is Christ and him alone. Now, we said that, that those words are sobering in this sense. It makes us ask the question, do we have faith? And if we do have faith... Where is our faith resting? The simple fact is, is none of us are moving mountains or moving trees. And I would venture to say that, that none of us are forgiving seven times in a day as Christ calls us to do here. And so this is a, a humbling reminder to us that, that wherever we are in our spiritual lives, however mature we may think we are, the call is to continue to, to learn to live in dependence on him. The call is to continually rest and trust in this Jesus in humble submission. So, sobering faith. Now, that, that brings us to the verses that are before us today. And everyone says amen and hallelujah. And so we're going to see two final points here. We've seen sobering interactions. We've seen sobering faith. Now, in verses 7 through 10, thirdly or firstly or however we want to think about this, we see sobering service. Sobering service. It says, Will any one of you who has a servant, Jesus is speaking, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare, for me and dress, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now, this scenario is one that, that maybe seem un, seems unfamiliar to us, but it would have been very familiar uh, to the disciples. You know, they understood perfectly well the dynamic between a master and a servant. This was something that was common to their culture, common to that time. It was a relationship with clear expectations, a relationship with clear boundaries. And so it was unthinkable... For them, no matter how hard the servant had worked, no matter how well he had performed his duties that day, that the master, at the end of the day, after he had worked and done all of these things, that he would come, invite him in and say, here, you come sit at the table and let me serve you. It, it didn't matter how great of a servant it was, he was, she was, he, he knew 
that this was never going to happen. That was an honor reserved only for family. To sit at the master's table was an honor reserved only for special guests, for those whom the master placed there. The servant's role was always to be the servant. In this case, to, to wait on the master hand and foot, even after he had worked out in the fields all day. And notice, is the master required, is he expected to even thank this faithful servant? That might be a nice thing to do, but notice here, Jesus says, he's not even expected to do that. Why? Well, as one commentator puts it, he says, it was not the master's responsibility to make life easy for his servants but the servant's responsibility to work hard for his master. Now again, this is sort of an unfamiliar scenario to us, so let's, let's try to bring it into modern times. Let's just say you hired somebody to do a job around your house. I'm going to use an example from my life this week. You hire somebody to replace your hot water heater, because we had to do that this week. Should I, when this guy, who I know and I like very much, should I, when he replaced our hot water heater and said, it's done, should I have rolled out the red carpet for him and said, hey, come eat at our table. Renee has made this wonderful dinner. Come eat. Now, when hot water is involved, we may feel like we need to do that. But, but, just stick with me here. Should I have done it? Even if he had replaced a hundred hot water heaters that day, the reality is, is I probably still would not have invited him to come and sit down and eat with us that night. It wouldn't have been a nice thing to do, but I probably would have not done that. Why? Because what he had done in replacing my, my water heater was the job that I was paying him to do, right? It, that was the, the expectations. And it's the same for this servant in our story. All he did was what was required. All he did was fulfill the role that was expected of him. He did the minimum. Well, notice, notice the point that, that Jesus makes in verse 10. He says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You want to talk about sobering. Friends, this is it. The reality is, is whether we would admit it or not, we all live as if we can do enough good things to place God in our debt. We all live as if God owes us something. If we do some really nice things, some really nice Christian things, if we come to church, if we read our Bibles, if we serve on this committee or that committee, if we help with this good cause or that good cause, we then think... Man, God is surely pleased with me today. Surely He is going to give me just exactly what I have earned here. He's going to give me exactly what I deserve. Now look, God may in fact be pleased with you. He may in fact give you some nice... He may in fact bless you. He may in fact give you what you think you deserve. But the point that Jesus is making here, and the point that we all need to come to grips with, is that if he does that, it will not be because I or you or anyone did enough good things to require that response from him. 
There is no good work that is good enough to place God in our debt. The simple fact is, reading it here, is if we did all that was required, if we followed every law perfectly, we would have only done what was expected of us. We, we would have only done the minimum. Remember, this was the, the problem that the elder brother in the prodigal, of the, uh, the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, this was the problem he had, right? He felt like he had worked for the father so hard as a slave for so long, and the father now was obligated to give him all of these things. He had to give him a party. He had to give him his inheritance. He had to give him all of this. Now look, the father was going to do all of that for him, but he was not required to do it. All the son had done was serve as a son should in his father's house. He had served faithfully, and yes, it was more than the prodigal had done, but it was still not enough to earn the father's favor. The father was not indebted to him. Now, friends, that's the case when we've done what is required. That's the case when we have followed the law. We're still unprofitable servants, God, or Jesus says, when you've done all that you were supposed to do. Here's the deal. How many of us do all that we are supposed to do? How many of us are fulfilling the law's demands as we were called to do? How many of us are following Jesus the way that we should? You don't have to turn with me. You can if you want to. But if you turn to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, it says, As it was written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You know, in, in uh, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may say, well, hey, that's, that's unbelievers there. Well, what about Romans 7? I'm, I'm in full belief that Paul is speaking of himself in his current state when he says, the things that I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And the things that I should be doing... I don't do. Or what about Isaiah 64? God says that all of our good works are filthy rags. They're just filthy rags. And so the point that I'm trying to make to you as, as we just continue to, to pile it on here is that even at our best, even when we think we've done it right, friends, the reality is, is our good works are so mixed with our own sin that they can merit us nothing before a holy and righteous God. And so we are, even at our best, even the best of us, less than an unworthy servant. We are less than an prof unprofitable servant. That's tough. That's hard. It's hard to, to think of ourselves in that way, especially in the world that we live in. And it leaves us feeling, if we really understand it, if we truly believe it, and we should if we look at our hearts, then it leaves us feeling rather hopeless. But remember I said back at the beginning of all of this that God may in fact, and He does, bless His people. That He does in fact keep an account of our good works. 
If you remember back to chapter 12, he even promised to do the unthinkable. He promised him, the master, to serve the servants. Why would he do that? Why, if all of this is true, why would he be willing to do such a thing? If you are a business person or if you have investments out in the world, this would be what you would call the worst investment in history. This would be like buying a house knowing full well that it was full of termites, that the foundation was falling apart, that the house was not going to be able to stand. This is what Jesus is saying that he will do. Why? How could he do such a thing? Well, friends, there's only... One answer. If it's not our merit, if we can't earn it, the only answer is grace. It's grace. He loves us despite ourselves. He loves us despite our sin. He loves us enough, even though we are his enemies, to come and to die in our place. He loves us enough to care for us so that now, Not only is salvation by grace, but friends, everything we have received from him, everything from his hand, is grace. Everything you have, everything you are, is his grace to you. All grace. Now for those of us who are self-righteous, for those of us who work real hard at being real good in order to, to present ourselves to the world in a certain way, this is a tough pill to swallow. As Paul says, that there is no room for boasting in this Christian faith, save in Christ and Him alone. We cannot look to ourselves. We cannot rest in ourselves because, friends, there's simply not anything to rest in. For others of us, we feel like our sin has disqualified us from a, from a relationship with God. We feel like we are so bad, that we are so unrighteous, that there is no hope at all. Friends, if that's you, then there's great news today for you. There's great news. If he deals with any of us, he deals with us by grace. And if he was willing to deal with me by grace, then that means maybe, surely, he's willing to deal with you by grace. And so no matter your sin, no matter how bad you think it may be, the reality is, as he says, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden. All of you who have done sins that that you don't want to confess to anybody else, which is every single one of us. He says, come to me. I will give you rest. Come to me, and I will save you. It's grace. It's grace that he has given to us. I love what Martin Luther says. He's, he's, this is from a, a sermon that, that he was preaching. And you know, the, the latter part of his ministry, after the, the theses, grace was the, the common theme of all of his messages, the majority of his messages. He always would say something about it. And he says here, he says, I myself have been preaching grace for almost 20 years, and still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. He says, still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet this is what I should and must do. This is the reality of the Christian life. This is what we all should and must do. We, we must surrender ourselves 
sheer grace. You see, here, uh, sobering, well, I don't even remember what my heading was now, I'm, I'm so far ahead of myself, uh, sobering service, sobering service, and then fourthly and finally here, we see sobering thankfulness, sobering thankfulness, uh, understanding that, that we should and must surrender to the sheer grace of God and knowing that God through Christ is willing to give that to us, the question becomes, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to a grace so overwhelming? And we see it in verses 11 through 19. Now, there's really two answers in this short little story, and I want to get to both of them, so we'll try to to move through this fairly fastly. Uh, But notice that Jesus enters into this area between Samaria and Galilee, and as he enters into this particular village, there are ten lepers there. Now, this is not the first time we've encountered lepers in Luke's gospel, and it won't be the last. And so, having said that, we don't have to take the time to, to recount the terrible life that they had. You know what they went through. You know how isolated they were. And so, knowing that, it's not surprising that when Jesus comes, having heard of his abilities to heal, his compassion for folks like them, it's not surprising that they would come and stand on the outskirts of the town at a distance and that they would cry to this Savior, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's a, a desperate plea for any type of hope. It's a desperate plea for for any type of healing. Maybe, maybe Jesus could give them even that. They're out of options. They don't know where else to turn. They have no merit, and they know it. So they cry out to this one for mercy. Not only is it the kind of plea that that sinners should make before a holy and righteous God, and it is. It's the the kind of plea that each one of us should fall before Jesus and make. Lord, Master, have mercy on me. But it's also just the kind of plea that speaks to his heart. It's the kind of plea that over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture causes him to act on behalf of those people who make these pleas. And that's certainly what he does there. They, they call out to him. He sees them in their desperate condition. And what does he say? He says, go present yourselves to the priest. Now we hear that and we think, man, that's sort of anticlimactic. That's, that's not exactly what we were hoping would happen. We were hoping Jesus would say, hey, you're healed. Get out of here. I want you to recognize that that in doing, in saying what he said, he's giving them exactly what they had asked for. Who is it under the Mosaic law? Who is it according to Leviticus 14? Who is the only person that can declare another person clean of leprosy? Who is the only person that can allow them back into the community? It's the priest. They were sort of a, um, a health inspector in that way. They had the responsibility, the authority to do this for these lepers. And so, Jesus sends them, even still leprous, but they surely would have understood, if he's sending us to the priest, that must mean at some point along the way, somehow, some way, we're going to be clean. Somehow, he's going to do what we have asked. And so they all ten, and this is to their credit, because when they leave, all ten of them still have leprosy. 
they all ten turn around and they go to the priest. And along the way it says that they were cured. Jesus had answered their cry for mercy. Now I want you to imagine, if you can, the moment, what that moment must have been like for them. Surely these men were, were overcome with joy. Surely they were overcome with emotion. I can picture them like falling down in the middle of the road, weeping, maybe jumping up and down, shouting with joy. Maybe they even began to think about who it was that they were going to go see, their family, they were going to go talk to, they were going to go hug. All of these thoughts would have run through their mind. But you also would have expected that somebody would have been glad. Somebody would have been thankful. Somebody would have thought, hey, what about this Jesus? Isn't he the source of all of this? Well, notice, not all ten of them think that. Not, not even like four or five of them think that. One of them thinks that. One. It says there in verse 15, it says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He turned back to praise this great Savior. He turned back to worship at the feet of the one who had healed him. But notice, who is he? What kind of a man is he? Not only is he a leper, but he's a Samaritan. Again, I, everybody should have gone, oh, he's a Samaritan. Y'all didn't do that, but the Jews would have done that. They would have said, oh, no, a Samaritan. This was their, the Jews, this was their enemies. This was, this was less than, than, these people were less than anybody to them. They, they worshipped on the mountain over there. The Jews worshipped on this mountain over here. And they did not get along. They, they did not meet in any way. And so, knowing that, what it means is not only was this man an outcast due to his disease, though he was that, he was also an outcast due to his nationality. He was an outcast culturally, religiously. In every sense of the word, this man was an outcast. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. Because my next question to you, why would he come back? Of all of the ten, why him? The other nine, surely, that they had the same, they should have been just as grateful. Why him? Well, I would submit to you, it's because this man knew more than any other, he was unworthy of what Jesus had just done for him. I can't say this for a fact. I do know that we don't ever hear from these lepers, as far as we know, unless they, somebody calls them by name at some point. We don't know that we hear from any of the nine again. Maybe it was because they thought, well, you know, we're Jews. We're, we're children of Abraham. Maybe we deserve this. Maybe, maybe Jesus has to do this for us. Maybe it was because they had been sick so long, they thought, well, well God owes us this. He, he has to heal us at this point. We've suffered long enough. Maybe it was just simply because they had heard about Jesus, and they thought, well, this is what he does. This is what he does for people like us. This is what he, he owes. This is his mission for people like us. And so they don't turn around and go back. Whatever the reason, they don't feel enough gratitude to turn around and go back to Jesus. This one man, 
He's a leper. He's an outcast. But he also knows Jesus owes him absolutely nothing because he's also a Samaritan. He's also not Jewish. And so if Jesus came to, to, to heal the Jews, see, we know he did far more than that, but if that's what he had come to do, then this Samaritan didn't deserve anything from the hand of Jesus. And so his heart, knowing that grace, friends, knowing how much he has been given in that moment, he has no choice but to go back and to worship. He has no choice but to go back and fall on his face and cry out in thankfulness to this one who has healed him. That's the first proper response to grace. That's the response for every one of us. Because we are all the Samaritan in this story. We act as if we're the nine, that maybe God owed us what he's given us. Maybe Jesus was supposed to do this for us. But really, we're the one. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. And yet, and yet, in his kindness, in his grace, in his mercy, in his overwhelming love to us, he has given us everything. He has given us salvation. He has given us hope. He has given us peace in a chaotic world. Most of all, he has given us himself. He's given us himself. What other response do we have but to fall at his feet and to praise his name? That is the only response, friends. Now, I say it's the only response, but I'm about to tell you another one. First, we, we fall back with, with gratitude. But notice secondly here, and I really think in the bigger picture, Jesus is driving us to this, this small little section in verse 19. He says, and he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Again, those, those ten that, that didn't come back, we, we don't hear from them. Certainly, they, they were healed physically from their disease. But notice here, there's more going on with this man. He's not just healed from leprosy. But when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, it is all-encompassing. He, he means this both physically and spiritually. In other words, your faith has saved you. Faith in Christ. And I want you to notice that it was faith at, at every point. Faith to cry out for mercy to this Jewish Messiah. Faith to turn around and go to the Jewish priest not even healed yet. And faith, faith to come back and to fall at his feet, and to worship him. What, what is he declaring about Jesus when he falls at his feet and worships him? Who is the only one worthy of worship? Who is the only one who can be praised? God Almighty. This man is falling at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him, and in doing so, he is declaring him God Almighty. Faith at every turn. It's faith that now rests in Jesus and it's faith that has now healed him both physically and spiritually. He's now a child of God. He will rest with Jesus forever. Just like our, our, our catechism question said this morning. He'll close his eyes 
he'll open them to Jesus. His overwhelming grace. Well, friends, we have to, to try to wrap this up, and, and I'll end it just like we did last week. Same, same, same situation here as we were at last week. What's, what's your response to, to the grace of this great Savior? He offers it freely, surprisingly and freely, to anyone who would receive it. How do we receive it? We are just like this one, just like this leper. We receive it empty-handed. We receive it bringing nothing. We're going to sing it in just a second. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Right? That's how we receive what, what Jesus is offering to us. Even he gives us the, the faith that is required. So we come clinging to nothing of our own. Instead, looking only to him, trusting only in him to act as only he can. Once again, are you looking to him by faith? If so, are you responding with overwhelming gratitude? There's there's only two things, faith and gratitude. they, They cannot be separated because they both stem from the overwhelming grace of this great Savior. Praise be to God for his grace towards us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider these, these words before us, Lord, they are, are difficult. Uh, they are sobering. They are overwhelming in so many ways. We, we read them and we hear them and our hearts cry out against it. We think surely we can merit something. Surely there is some good in us. Surely uh, we can... We can put you in our debt somehow so that what we receive from you is what we've earned. Father, your word is clear. There there is no good work that can earn anything from your hand. So our prayer today is that you'll teach us to to learn to rest in your overwhelming grace towards us. Lord, we can't do that on our own. Uh, Our predisposed nature is to try to earn our way. And so, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in us and that you would help us to to learn dependence, dependence on you. And, Lord, that you would be pleased to take our good works, however not good, however filthy they may be, that you'd be pleased to use them in mighty ways. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in him we can confess all these things. We can confess that we are yours and you will not let us go and that we will see you for all of eternity. And we praise you for his grace towards us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.